Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac Podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's funny some of the things that you think about that you're going to say for the last time. And uh, I am excited to be able to do uh, what I'm used to doing. And uh, my wife said to me, um, what are you going to preach on? And I had several things that was going through my mind at the time. And she said, why don't you, uh, why don't you, be, why don't you be real personal and, and just kind of open up your heart? And I thought, well, that would be different. Um, so I chose not to do that. <laughs> Part of the reason I chose that is this. Um, tonight, and I'd love to see you back here tonight and be able to talk with as many as you, of you as I can, but this is the Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. And uh, I don't think we're here this morning to honor a man. I think we're here to worship Christ and to honor his word. So honestly, as I thought about today, I, I, I didn't want to do anything different than I normally do, which is just simply open up the word of God, which has been so special, and just share it with you. Tonight, we can have all the sentimentalities and all those other things that make life so uncomfortable for me. <laughs> uh, but this morning, uh, just open your Bible, if you would, to Matthew Chapter 5, I was going to preach out of Romans. I was absolutely convinced that God wanted me to preach out of Romans 11. I had memorized this passage. That's the doxology in Romans 11. It's so powerful, so beautiful, and uh, I had never really gone over it before. Matter of fact, somebody asked me if there was anything I had regretted uh, being here. And, you know, the, really the only thing I ever regret was not teaching through or preaching through the book of Romans because I think it's one of the most powerful doctrinal foundational books in the New Testament. And this beautiful doxology in Romans chapter 11. And I began to just tear it apart. And uh, I ended up with um, so many notes that it would have taken three sermons to preach it or a sack lunch today. I didn't think you wanted to do that. So I'm going to do something that I've always wanted to do. And that is preach one verse today in Matthew chapter 5. And I was thinking about this as well. Um, I had kind of gone down this path maybe as a, a sermon. I was just thinking of some things that our culture is going through. And we just live in a society right now that maybe more than ever has made the pursuit of personal happiness their number one objective. People are leaving jobs because they're not happy. They're leaving marriages because they're not happy. They're leaving families because they're not happy. They leave communities and churches because they're not happy. You, happy. you name it, they leave it. And all for this quest of personal happiness. And, and you know, it doesn't bother me so much that the world does that. I expect the world to do wrong things. What bothers me is when I see professing Christians who have gotten caught up in that same kind of quest, that same kind of pursuit, almost to the same extent 
as the world, so that there really is absolutely no limit to what a person who calls themselves a child of God will do to find happiness. I believe that Jesus gave to us a description of and a prescription for happiness. And it's in Matthew chapter 5. We call them the Beatitudes. And a number of years ago, I preached through the Beatitudes. Eight specific ways to find happiness. As a matter of fact, all eight of those ways begin with the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. And so on and so forth. That word is the word makurios. And it means fortunate, blissful. You can even use the word happy. How happy are the poor in spirit? How happy are those who mourn? How happy are the meek? And on and on and on and on. So I think one of the questions we have to answer is what is happiness? Because everybody seems to be pursuing it. So what is happiness? Well, let me give you what I think is a definition, description of happiness that I think is, is very biblical, and then you'll see how that's supported as we go through the text this morning. I believe that happiness is uh, the condition of inner joy and contentedness that is not dependent upon circumstances, situations, or relationships. It's the condition of inner joy and contentedness that is not dependent on circumstances, situations, people, relationships. Now compare that with the modern day concept of happiness. You're only happy if you have the right job. Only happy if you live in the right place, own the right home, live, um, wear the right clothes, drive the right car, make the right amount of money, marry the right person. And all those aspects of happiness are totally dependent upon external conditions and external circumstances. If you don't make enough money, you're not happy. If you marry the wrong person, you're not happy. Uh, If you live in the wrong community, you're not happy. It's interesting that the world's description of happiness really comes from the word hap, H-A-P, which means chance or luck or good fortune. We get the word happenstance from it. I don't think that God's definition, description of happiness has anything to do with luck. I don't think it has anything to do with good fortune or circumstances. His happiness is the happiness that's not altered by those things. His happiness is the happiness that's not altered by relationships or circumstances or situations that you may find yourself in. That kind of happiness is the happiness of the heart. It's a condition of the heart. And if we're going to discover that kind of happiness, I don't think uh, there's any problem with us being happy. I think God wants us to be happy. Matter of fact, I'm going to tell you this. I think a Christian who's not happy is a disgraceful testimony. So there's no question in my mind that I think God wants us to be happy. But if we're going to discover that kind of happiness, then we have to do it God's way. Not ours. Not the world's. Matter of fact, the thought behind that comes out of Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 through 9 where God says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. So what does that mean? The way you and I think we ought to be happy is probably not God's way. 
As the heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the standards of genuine happiness that Jesus gives in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 11, is not only the exact opposite in concept and procedure to what the world believes and what our society believes, but sometimes it's the exact opposite to our own way of thinking as believers, unfortunately. So this morning I want to look at that. Now, I'm not going to look at all eight Beatitudes, so you can wipe, wipe that fearful look off from your brow. I'm actually going to slide down to verse 6, which is my favorite Beatitude, and since it's my last Sunday, I thought I could preach. I loved it. Pastor Chad said, well, you don't have to preach Revelation. That was good, because I think I was scheduled to do the bull judgments. And, uh, but then I got thinking about it, and he said, you can uh, preach whatever you want to. And I thought, well, okay, that sounds good, but there's over 31,000 verses in the Bible, which made the task a little harder. So I kind of settled on this with Matthew 5, 6, blessed, or how happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let me give you four truths about this particular beatitude that I think Jesus wants us to see. First of all, I want you to notice the passion in this beatitude. The passion in this beatitude. Immediately when we read that verse, we struggle, I think, with identifying and understanding this beatitude because I don't think probably most of us in here understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about hunger and thirst. I just don't think we understand it. We live in a land of plenty. You can turn on any tap and you can get water. You can go to your refrigerator and most generally there's food. You can drive through any drive through and pick up a sandwich. Uh, you, you can satisfy hunger and thirst immediately. I, I don't think we have any idea what he's talking about here. The people in Jesus' day would have been able to relate to what he was saying physically. William Barclay, in his commentary on Matthew, said this, A working man in Palestine ate meat only once a week. Man, am I glad I didn't live in that time. And the working man was never far from the borderline of real hunger and actual starvation. It was still more so in the case of thirst. It was not possible for the vast majority of people to turn a tap and find the clear, cold water pouring into their house. Their hunger is not a hunger which could be satisfied with a mid-morning snack, and their thirst is no thirst which could be relieved with a cup of coffee or an iced drink. It is the hunger of a man who's starving for food and the thirst of a man who will die unless he drinks. So when Jesus says he wants us to hunger and thirst... He's using here some very intense words. The word for hunger means to be famished, to suffer deep hunger. It's not just that you miss a meal hunger, it's the starvation hunger. And, you know, we use these terms all the time. I'm dying of thirst. I would dare say that 95% of us in here don't know what it means to die of thirst. Or I'm starving to death. I don't think any of us in here have ever starved to death. We're even close to it. When he says thirst, it's not the need of just a drink, but it's being so parched and dry and dehydrated from the lack of water that death is not far off. So when Jesus speaks of hungering and thirsting, he's using those terms metaphorically to speak of craving something ardently 
or seeking something with an eager desire or passion or longing for something deeply, craving, seeking, longing. Jesus is talking here about a great, intense craving, desire, passion for something. Jesus is wanting us to be passionate, eagerly passionate about something. The question is, what is the something? That leads us to the priority of this beatitude. Secondly, the priority of this beatitude. Jesus is saying, how happy are those who are passionate or hungering for righteousness. That's what we need to be hungering for, passionate for. That's what we're to long for, search for, intensely crave. Now, in order to do that, let's understand what he means by righteousness here, okay? The word itself means straightness or that which is aligned to a perfect standard. And that perfect standard obviously is God. He's the perfect standard of righteousness. God is fully righteous. It means he is perfectly right. He's perfectly right in everything that he does. He's perfectly right in everything that he says. He's perfectly right in in every judgment that he makes. Everything that God does is absolutely right. God never has to choose between right and wrong. There is no right or wrong with God because everything with God is right. So whatever he does is right because he's righteous, fully righteous. He's perfect righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus is referring to here in verse 6 is not the positional righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us at the moment of salvation so that God declares us to be justified where we stand before God and we are innocent of all sin. That's not the righteousness here. It's practical righteousness. It's the result of Christ's righteousness in us. It's the result of Christ being in us. So when Jesus says that you and I are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, he means we are to desire, we are to crave, earnestly crave to align our lives to God's perfect standard. It means that we're going to do, we're going to say, we're going to think, we're going to live what is right. It means that we're going to conform to God's will, we're going to obey him. It means really we're going to live like Jesus lived. That's what it means. By the way, let me go as far as to say this. I believe that's the evidence of salvation. One writer said this, to have God's life within us through new birth in Christ is to desire more of his likeness within us by growing in righteousness. And the Apostle John basically said the same thing in 1 John 2, 6. Look at what he says up here. Whoever says he abides in him, in Christ ought to walk or to live, how? In the same way in which he, Jesus, walked and lived. That's to be our priority. Now, the question is, how do we know that Jesus was making this a priority for us? I believe there's five indications here, all right? First of all, it is a priority because of its exclusiveness. It's a priority because of its exclusiveness. Here's what I mean by that. I want you to think about this. Of all that Jesus could have told us to hunger and thirst after, why righteousness? He could have told us to hunger and thirst after love. He could have told us to hunger and thirst after faith. He could have told us to hunger and thirst after goodness or kindness or peace. But he chose righteousness. 
Why is that? I believe it's because righteousness encompasses all of those. When a person is right with God, they'll demonstrate love. When a person is right with God and walking right with God, they'll demonstrate goodness and kindness. There'll be peace in their life. There'll be faith. You'll be doing and living what is right because you have been walking after righteousness, craving righteousness. So it's a priority, first of all, because of its exclusiveness. Secondly, it's a priority because of its distinctiveness. You don't see it in your Bible and I don't know why there's not a version that puts it in, but Jesus uses, actually in the Greek, he uses a, what is called the definite article, the. So that really verse 6 should read like this, how happy are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness, the righteousness. In other words, you can't just select what kind of righteousness you want it to be. It has to be the Righteousness. You and I don't get the privilege to determine what is right and what isn't right. So Jesus is talking about the standard of righteousness, which God and God alone says is right. And we find that standard, by the way, and this shouldn't surprise you, in the Word, right? Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, the writer of Hebrews says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. That word oracles means the utterances of God. He's talking about the word of God here. He says you need milk. You're immature. That's what he's talking about. You're like babies. You're still nursing. In other words, they're dabbling around the word, but they're not skilled in it at all. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of what? Righteousness. In other words, you don't know how to be right. You don't know how to live right. You don't make the kind of choices that you should make, even though you're a believer. Why? Because he says, since he is a child. You know, we just don't expect children to make the right choices all the time, do we? They're just not skilled to do that. They haven't grown yet. There's not that maturity. And he says, that's, that's what we're like spiritually. There's just that, not that maturity. We're, we're unskilled in this word of righteousness, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. They know right from wrong. It's the word of God that brings you to that place. If you're going to live righteous, then you're going to have to choose every day to align your behavior to what the Word of God says, not what you think, not what somebody else thinks. So it is a priority because of its distinctiveness. Thirdly, it is a priority. This righteousness, this hungering and thirsting after righteousness is a priority because of its necessity. People hunger for, thir- for food and thirst for water because those are our basic needs, right? I mean, you don't eat and you don't drink, what's going to happen? You're going to die. You, you have to eat and you have to drink in order to live, in order to survive. Without those things, a person's going to cease to exist. exist. Life is dependent on food and water. And I think what Jesus wants us to see here is the comparison. 
that just as our physical life depends upon food and water, our spiritual life depends upon righteousness. I don't think we get that sometimes. Matter of fact, I'll give you a little quiz, but I don't want you to participate, okay? If I ask you how many of you need food or water to live, how many of you would raise your hand? We don't even need science to tell us that. But if I asked you whether you believed that without righteousness, you couldn't live spiritually, how many of you would raise your hand? We understand about food and water. I don't think we understand the importance of righteousness. And what Jesus is saying is this, is that we can no more live spiritually without righteousness than we can live physically without food and water. So it is a priority because it's a necessity. Fourthly, it is a priority because of its totality. Because of its totality. The um, verbs here, hunger and thirst, normally in the Greek language, they would be followed by the partitive case, which indicates partialness. So that uh, it would read something like this, I hunger for of food, or I thirst for of water. In other words, I only want some. I don't need, I don't need some. You know, you know, if a person's dying of thirst, he, he, he doesn't need a swimming pool. He just needs a glass of water. If a person's dying of starvation, he doesn't need a smorgasbord. He just needs a little bit of food. Okay, but... The way it's written in the Greek is written in what is called the accusative case so that it would read like this, I hunger for the whole loaf. I want the whole loaf. I thirst for the whole pitcher of water. In other words, that's how much we crave righteousness. I don't want, in other words, what Jesus is saying is this, the person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness doesn't want to do just some things right, doesn't want to do just a few things right. He wants to live completely right. That's his desire, his craving. I'm not saying we're going to get that. I'm not saying we're going to do this perfectly. I'm talking about desire, craving. Person who is hungry to the point of starvation, thirsty to the point of death, longs only, only for that which satisfied their hunger and their thirst. That's all they can think about. It's all they desire. You don't find a starving person saying, I want some food, but I'd like some new clothes too. You don't, you don't find a person who's dying of thirst saying, well, I'd like some water, but throw in a new car. All they want is what they need to give them life. That's all they're interested in. That's all they want. Now, let me submit something to you. It may sound a little harsh, but I just ask you to weigh it out yourself. I wonder if the reason that we don't seek Righteousness, above all else, is that we're not hungry and thirsty for it. And the reason that we're not hungry and thirsty for it is that we don't believe it's all that we need. But according to Jesus, it is. So, hungering and thirsting after righteousness is a priority because it's inclusive. 
because it's distinct, because it's necessary, because it's total, and then lastly, it's a priority because it is continuous. The verbs hunger and thirst are in a present continuous tense, which simply means we're to keep on hungering and we're to keep on thirsting for righteousness. We're to never come to the place where we're satisfied. We're never to come to the place where we just we, we stop longing and we stop searching and we stop craving for righteousness. So we've seen the passion. We've seen the priority. Now, thirdly, let's look at the promise from this beatitude, the promise from it. Here's the promise. I love this. This is, a, this is a verse with a promise. Has a condition. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they, here's the, here's the promise, they shall be what? Satisfied. Interesting word, satisfied. It's a farmer's word. It's used to describe the feeding of an animal till they can't eat anymore. They're just full. And Jesus is saying that those who hunger and thirst for what is right will be fully and completely satisfied. Now you say satisfied with what? Because I think we have to identify that. Well, we'll be satisfied for what we're hungering and thirsting for. What are you hungering and thirsting for? Righteousness. So that's what you're satisfied with. We will be completely satisfied with knowing that our life and the way we live is right. I don't know if that matters to you, but I'll tell you something. The, the only thing that really matters is knowing that we are right with God, isn't it? I don't think there's any greater satisfaction that knowing our life is right, that the decisions we're making are right, that the choices we're making are right, that the things we're saying are right, that we're living in a way that God is pleased with. And we're not, we're not living in a way to please him so that he'll accept us because he's already accepted us in Christ, right? But because he's accepted us in Christ, we want to please him. That's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1. He, he was praying for the Colossian believers, Colossi believers, and, he, and his prayer was this, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Fully pleasing to him. Does that matter? Does it matter to you if God is fully pleased with you? I think this also means that we will be completely content in life. Completely content in life. When, when you and I are longing for what is right according to God's standards of right, and that is our entire focus, then we're not going to be caught up with what we think we're lacking or what we think we'd like to have because we're being consumed with his righteousness. Consumed with his righteousness. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Matter of fact, before he gets to verse 33, I love the passage starting in verse 25. He talks about being anxious about things. He says, why are you anxious about food? Consider the birds of the air that God provides for them. Are you of not much more value than the birds? Why are you concerned? Why are you anxious about clothes? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin, and God clothes them. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? What are you concerned about all these other things for? And then he gets to verse 33, and he says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his what? 
righteousness. And guess what? All those other things will be added onto you. All those other things will be added onto you. Notice the pronoun in this promise, they. If you have your Bible open, circle that. They shall be satisfied. They will, shall be satisfied. It's the Greek word autos, A-U-T-O-S. And it's very important. It means that they and only they who hunger for what is right will be the ones who are satisfied. Isn't that interesting? Very strong word. All, they and only they who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be the ones who are satisfied. That means everybody who is lost will not be satisfied. That means believers who do not hunger and thirst after righteousness will not find full satisfaction in their life. This is what Jesus is talking about. I think it's why we find the church, so many professing Christians like the world, chasing all these things, hoping that they'll bring some kind of satisfaction because they're not believing what Jesus said, I will be the satisfaction. When you seek and pursue righteousness, I will give you satisfaction like you've never had before. Your satisfaction won't be dependent upon a spouse. Your satisfaction won't be dependent upon children or upon parents. It won't be dependent upon a job or how much money you make or how much money you don't make. It'll be dependent totally upon the righteousness that you crave in your life becoming more like Christ. I think to try and find happiness and satisfaction any other way, it just won't work. It's only through the pursuit of righteousness. That's what Jesus is saying. By the way, this verse is a very interesting verse. It's what I call an antithetical verse, which simply means that you, you can turn the verse around. It really says the same thing. What he says here is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, you can turn it around that if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will not be satisfied. Right? One last thing. Let's look at the paradox in this beatitude. The paradox. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his fantastic work on the Sermon on the Mount, says this. The Christian is one who at one and the same time is hungering and thirsting and yet is filled. And the more he is filled, the more he hungers and thirsts. That's the paradox. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is this. The more that you long and earnestly search for what is right, the more you will be satisfied. But the more that you are satisfied, the more you will continue to long for and search for what is right. And the more that you long for and search for what is right, the more you'll be satisfied. And the more you'll be satisfied. Do you get the point? In other words, you're filled, but there's still more room. You're satisfied, but there's still more satisfaction. I love cherry pie. I love cherry pie. It's my favorite pie. I can eat cherry pie and I can become full. But if my wife says, you want another piece? Yes. <laughs> it's probably a crude definition or a crude example. In other words, it just, there's always a desire for more. There's always a desire for more, but there's always satisfaction that comes from that. So let me ask you a question this morning. 
What is it that you hunger and thirst for most in your life? What do you desire more than anything else? What is your goal? What is your aim? What is your pursuit? What is your passion? Is it God and his righteousness or is it your own concept of happiness and satisfaction? I believe if it's anything other than righteousness, you will not only not find satisfaction in your life, you will forfeit the happiness God intended you to have. Now you may be saying, well, how can I know whether I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, let me suggest some things. I think you will know that you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness when you are not satisfied with your present spiritual condition. When you're not satisfied with your present spiritual condition. This is the only time I think as a Christian we can be discontent. Uh, I call it holy discontent. In other words, we never can have that mindset that we've arrived spiritually and we've got no place else to go. We're just waiting for the train to take us to glory. We are ever learning and coming to the knowledge of the truth. Always. So you will know that you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness when you're not satisfied with your present spiritual condition. I want more. I want more of Christ. I want more of the word. I want more of truth. I want more of righteousness. Secondly, you will know that you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness when you are continually desiring to know God better than you did yesterday. When you are continually desiring to know God better than you did yesterday. Do you, do, do, you, do you even think about that? Is that your heart's desire? Do you wake up each day with a longing to know Christ better than you did the day before? I think of Philippians 3.10 where the Apostle Paul says, I want to know him. I just want to know him. You would think after all this time, Paul knew him. <laughs> I mean, he's written a whole lot of books that are going to be epistles in the New Testament. He, he's had a revelation of Jesus where Jesus came to him and explained to him what the gospel was. He had a revelation of him on the road of Damascus bringing him to salvation. You would think if anybody knew Christ, it was Paul. And he says, I just want to know him. That's when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's when you continue to desire to know God better than you did the day before. If you were to evaluate your life, would you say you know God better today than you did yesterday? Would you say you know God better today than you did last month? Or last year? Or five years ago? Thirdly, you will know that you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness when your satisfaction in life is not coming from exterior, external material things. You will know that you are hungry and thirsting for righteousness when your satisfaction in life is not coming from external material things. Now, there's nothing wrong with external material things. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, he said, you tell those who are rich in this world not to be haughty or high-minded, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who richly gives us all things to enjoy, right? 
So the things we have, we can enjoy. What happens is, is that our enjoyment in them seems to supersede our enjoyment in the one who gave them to us. That's the danger. So you will know that you are hungry and thirsting for righteousness when your satisfaction in life doesn't come from the gifts. Your satisfaction always comes from the giver of the gifts. Finally, you will know that you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness when your appetite for God's word is greater than your appetite for anything else. I love what Job said. Job 23, 12 said this, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Would you rather eat or read the Bible? Would you rather eat or meditate on Scripture? I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. And your word became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And of course, Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone. But by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Amen? Amen? Amen. Well, that's it. Come to the end of the notes. That's it. Let me just say this uh, to you. Because all, like I said, all the sentimentalities for tonight. But let me just say to you how much I've enjoyed these 23 years. How much I love you. I'm going to try to say the sentimentality today. How exciting it's been. Every Sunday. To come to a church that hungers for the word. I would preach the word whether you hungered for it or not. But what a great delight it is when you know people want it. When they want it. So you have enriched my life. You have blessed me. Uh, I never thought 23 years ago we'd be to this place. Um, But I'm grateful. It's been a great journey. Love you all. Hope to be able to see you tonight and uh, be able to share a little more intimately with you. Uh, Get out of my comfort zone a little bit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word, man, it's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. We hide it in our hearts so that we will not sin against you. We need to dwell in us richly in all wisdom. It is that which continues to save our soul. I thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to open it, to understand it, to teach it. But I also thank you for the privilege of being able to teach it to a congregation that you've entrusted me with that wants to receive it. It has been, Lord, my joy, my delight. And we just commit this word to you. And I pray that each of us in here will have a new passion to hunger and thirst after righteousness because, Father, we don't want, neither do we need the things the world has to offer us for satisfaction. We need you to satisfy us. 
So thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that takes it to every heart and makes it understandable and applicable to their lives. And we bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.